Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the May Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. It's just me today, Anne, but I have uh, some pretty interesting things to cover, so hopefully it won't be too boring just listening to my voice. Um, I want to say Happy Mother's Day to everyone who's listening, and I hope you're enjoying a beautiful spring day as a mother um, or with your mom, um, and hopefully um, it'll just be fun. So the first topic is one that uh, many of us don't run across super often, regarding ketogenic diets for infants who have seizures. The article is entitled, Initiating the Ketogenic Diet in Infants with Treatment Refractory Epilepsy While Maintaining a Breast Milk Diet. And this is uh, this was published uh, recently in 2019 in the journal Seizure, European Journal of Epilepsy. So the authors of this article state that up to about 38% of infants with epilepsy have drug-resistant epilepsy with the outcome being pretty poor for those infants because of lack of seizure control. In 2015, the International League Against Epilepsy recommended that the ketogenic diet is possibly effective for treatment of generalized seizures, especially for certain types, including glucose transporter deficiency type 1 and pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency. It's also been uh, found to be effective for infantile spasms. So the authors of this article were interested in looking at how infants on a ketogenic diet may also receive breast milk, which we know has lots of carbs, making breast milk pretty much non-ketogenic. This article essentially evaluates a protocol for infants who are prescribed a ketogenic diet for their seizures while also receiving some breast milk. And basically, they had moms mix their expressed breast milk with a ketogenic infant formula, three parts formula, and one part breast milk. And the article evaluated the results of nine infants who were anywhere from one to seven months of age who had drug-resistant seizures who were put on this protocol. Every infant was a little different in terms, of the t- in terms of the reason for seizures, but they all failed prescription meds for seizures. They followed the, infant, the infants for ketosis and measured their urinary ketones and their serum beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is a proxy for ketosis, And essentially, all were able to maintain ketosis, which was the goal on this combination. So the bottom line, if you're dealing with an infant who needs a ketogenic diet for seizures, um, it would be um, reasonable to add a certain amount of breast milk. The next article and topic I want to talk about is dismaturation of the premature brain, uh, important, the importance, cellular mechanisms, and potential interventions. And that's the name of this article that's currently in press in um, pediatric neurology. The author is Joseph Volpe. So this article is basically a summary which looks at the underlying causes of brain Im- injury related to prematurity, particularly for infants who are born less than 32 weeks. So we know that brain injury due to prematurity is termed premature brain dismaturation. And we know that brain injury occurs from low oxygen, such as, um, uh, you know, various medical issues that will reduce blood flow to the brain, uh, bodily inflammation, and of course, infection. 
The principal manifestations of premature brain dismaturation have been more recently recognized because it because you have to use advanced MRI imaging to really see them well. And some noticeable changes include smaller volumes in certain areas of the brain, including white matter, thalamus, and the basal ganglia. And then the imaging also shows fewer folds in the cerebral cortex, which means normally if you look at a brain, many people know what a brain looks like, and it looks like it has hills and valleys. And with a premature infant who has dismaturation, the brain looks smoother with fewer folds. On functional MRIs, premature infants with dysmaturation may have impaired development of thalamocortical connectivity, meaning like fewer connections between different parts of the brain, which is uh, what the white matter is all about. So the concern is that some of these changes have been found to persist well into adulthood, and we need to figure out ways to prevent this problem. There are two strategies for preventing brain, imaging, brain injury during prematurity. One is to protect the brain cells from injury or death to begin with, and the other is to ensure proper maturation of the brain by nurturing that um, infant. So the article discuss, uh, discusses a number of strategies that are in various stages of experimentation to protect and support the brain, such as the use of erythropoietin, hyaluronic acid, and then some gene therapy, um, including microRNA sequences and also stem cells. But what I want to focus on for the purpose of this podcast is about the nutritional factors that play a central role in brain health as well. And the author states that optimal nutrition during NICU care and post-hospitalization has been shown to be a very important factor in brain restoration in infants with brain injury. The author discusses that breastfeeding is associated with better white matter maturation and that breastfeeding after hospitalization has long-lasting beneficial effects on white matter. Uh, several regions of the brain have been shown to have better development in breastfed infants, and those areas correlate with the improved cognitive skills seen in breastfed infants. Another issue about nutrition is that the polyunsaturated fatty acids, also known as PUFAs, are, are very critical to brain development. And brain PUFAs are typically acquired in the third trimester of fetalhood and in the first two years of life. So therefore, a premature infant who is not in utero in that third trimester is not going to have an accumulation of these essential fatty acids. We know that breast milk is an excellent source of these essential fatty acids, and formula with essential fatty acids added has never been proven to be as effective as feeding breast milk with its own essential fatty acids. Uh, two recent studies showed that the blood level of polyunsaturated fatty acids correlates with maturation of white matter, as well as the overall volume of cerebral cortex and other parts of the brain. And these changes correlate with improved visual and cognitive function. So it's recommended that, that mothers who um, are breastfeeding premature infants take a polyunsaturated fatty acid supplement. And there have been some other articles about that. And in fact, if those, if any of you uh, read the clinical questions of the week through the LACTED, L-A-C-T-E-D website.org website, um, we did a clinical question of the week on this topic. Um, there was an article that was published a, a few years ago by Dr. Bert Koletsko, and um, he suggested um, he made a case in his article that three grams of tuna oil a day taken by a breastfeeding mother would boost the polyunsaturated fatty acid level in breast milk to mimic what the premature infant would have been exposed to in utero. So I think this is an area that we have to pay close attention to.
Another vital nutritional factor for brain development is iron, and premature infants lose out on iron accumulation in the third trimester, just like they do for the polyunsaturated fatty acids. We know that breast milk has less iron than formula, but the author states that the optimal way to uh, prevent iron deficiency, particularly in term infants, is delayed cord clamping because this allows a transfusion of blood from the placenta to the infant after birth before cutting the cord. And some recent work has shown that infants with delayed cord clamping have higher amounts of myelin, which is the white sheet, which is a sheathing that um, makes the brain matter white um, because of their improved iron status. Another vital nutritional factor is zinc. And zinc is similar to iron in that it's accumulated in the third trimester, so premature infants have low levels. Um, the zinc levels in breast milk are variable and sometimes low, so this area is still being researched to understand ideal amounts of zinc intake for premature infants and whether or not they should be supplemented. And then besides the nutritional aspects of breast milk, um, loving attention by parents has been shown to be restorative to the premature brain along with positive and responsive parenting. And this is something that breastfeeding mothers have down pat, of course. So skin to skin, nuzzling at the breast, and generally frequent contact with the parents helps to keep the infant's um, stress hormones down, including uh, glucocorticoids and catecholamines. And these stress hormones are pro-inflammatory and are harmful to the premature brain. So in general, the author makes the case that breastfeeding is very important for prevention of brain injury and for brain maturation, um, particularly for premature infants who have dismaturation um, of the brain related to their prematurity. Okay, so I'm going to move on to a different topic, and we're going to talk about the thymus gland. Um, for those of you who have not seen an infant thymus gland on an x-ray, it is a large organ that looks like a huge blob in the center of a newborn chest x-ray. It sits behind the sternum and between the lungs, and over time it gradually shrinks. So by the time I'm looking at chest x-rays in older children, um, particularly you know after puberty, I really don't identify the thymus on an x-ray. Um, it's an organ that plays an important role in the development of the immune system by providing an environment for T lymphocytes to mature. So our bodies make B and T lymphocytes to fight infection processes such as, um, I'm sorry, disease processes such as infections. And um, the immature T, T lymphocytes are actually born in the bone marrow. And then they migrate to the thymus in order to become fully functional T lymphocytes. So the thymus is almost like a school or a camp for immature lymphocytes to become trained soldiers in the immune system. And once they're released from the thymus, they go on to the lymph nodes and have a role in making antibodies in response to diseases. So in addition, the thymus gland plays a role in teaching tolerance to one's own tissues. And this helps to decrease the number of T cells that cause autoimmune diseases because autoimmune diseases are caused by antibodies that our bodies generate against our own tissue. <clears throat> so here's a little story. Um, about 20 years ago, I ordered a chest x-ray on a breastfed seven-month-old who was ill with a respiratory infection. And I remember this very clearly because the radiologist called me to say that the child's thymus was much bigger than usual, and he didn't understand why. And he suggested that I repeat the chest x-ray sometime later to make sure that this didn't amount to anything. Um, and interestingly, so this was like in the mid to late 90s, and uh, this was a time of much lower breastfeeding rates after six months of age. So this radiologist probably didn't see that many chest x-ray and 
chest x-rays on infants who were breastfed after six months. So at that time, I was involved in breastfeeding medicine, and I remember that there was an article that was published in 1996 that was the first research study that measured the size of the thymus based on the type of infant feeding. The authors show that the thymus gland in breastfed four-month-olds were nearly twice as large as, as uh, four-month-olds who are formula-fed. And the four-month-olds who were partially breastfed had thymus glands sizes that were sort of between the fully breastfed and the non-breastfed infants. They also found that the infant stopped, when the infant stopped breastfeeding, the thymus gland stayed larger for a couple weeks and then the, then the gland shrank down. So they determined that breast milk must stimulate the thymus growth and activity, but they didn't know why, other than surmising that this phenomenon must be due to the immunologic factors in breast milk. Well, about my story, I never repeated the chest x-ray. I assumed, based on that study, that this was probably related to breastfeeding. Um, and I can say that this child is now off to college playing a, a sport for the college, and he's super healthy. Um, so now, fast forward to 2019, and the study I want to review is entitled Breast Milk Interleukin-7 and Thymic Gland Development in, in Infancy. This was a study that was done in Germany. Um, we now know so much more about several immunologic components in breast milk, and one is a cytokine called interleukin-7. And interleukin-7 controls the birth of T-cells in the bone marrow and plays a role in T-cell education, their persistence outside the thymus, their maturation, and even T-cell death. So very much um, plays an important role in the lifespan and behavior of the T-cell. So the authors wanted to see if the level of interleukin-7 in breast milk is associated with the development of the thymus gland, including its size and its output of lymphocytes. Um, I should say that this... Ooh, I can't remember where this study was published. I'll have to look that up and put it on the website. Um, but it was just published this year in 2019. Oh, I'm sorry. It was in uh, Nature 2019. Um, so this study um, included 38 mother-infant dyads, and 19 were exclusively breastfed, 19 were mixed formula and breastfed, and then they had this control group of seven, they had, uh, 17 dyads who were formula-fed, which I think is really funny here because the control group is formula as a formula is the normal and then breastfeeding is not. So what we should be doing is turning this around to say, gosh, I wonder if formula does not allow the thymus to proliferate like it should be, but you know, this is where we need to go with the research is to look at breastfeeding as being normal. Anyway, they evaluated the infants at three time points, at two, four, and six months of age, and they documented their type of feeding and made sure that they were growing appropriately. Um, because if infants are not gaining weight appropriately, the thymus gland may not be as large. Uh, they measured the thymus gland for each infant at two, four, and six months, and they also looked um, at blood work for their blood counts and their T lymphocyte subsets. And then they measured the interleukin-7 levels in the breast milk of those who are breastfeeding or mixed feeding. So first, if we talk about thymus size, the thymus gland was much smaller in the formula-fed infants in comparison to those who were partially or fully breastfed. In fact, there wasn't a lot of difference in the size of the thymus gland, in comparing those who are partially fed and those who are fully breastfed. Um, they also found that the higher the interleukin-7 level in the breast milk, the larger the thymus gland. So it really had a strong influence on the size or the proliferation of the gland or maybe the activity of the gland. 
And in addition, the fully and partially breastfed infants had higher lymphocyte counts, which are believed, which again um, is believed to be related to the increased thymus output based on thymus size. Another interesting finding is that the mothers who were fully breastfeeding had higher concentrations of interleukin-7 in their breast milk compared to those who are partially breastfeeding. So there seems to be something about their frequency of breastfeeding that controls how much interleukin-7 is produced in the breast. And in order to substantiate what they found um, with the study, the authors also pointed out a study that added interleukin-7 to neonatal human thymic cultures, so like, like petri dishes with the um, thymic cells, like a, like a thymic gland basically in a petri dish. And when they added the interleukin-7 to it, the, the cells increased the number of immature and mature cells that were put out. And then also just clinically, interleukin-7 is now being used to stimulate T-cell development in individuals who have low lymphocyte counts after chemotherapy. So this is pretty fascinating. Um, I also think what's interesting is that many people will ask, well, is partial breastfeeding as beneficial or does it have any benefits to, um, as opposed to just formula feeding? And I think this is one case where we can say, yes, even partial breastfeeding does play a role in thymic development and, and in terms of maturation of lymphocytes. Um, one limitation of the study is that they didn't measure vitamin D levels in the mothers or infants. And I thought that was really interesting. I thought, well, why? They didn't really explain that. So I looked that up in PubMed, and, it, and um, apparently studies now show that low levels of vitamin D during pregnancy is associated with a smaller thymus and the neonate. So more to come on that in the future. Um, the final topic for today's podcast is about lipase and the perception that babies sometimes refuse breast milk because of high lipase levels, which may change the taste of the milk. So a recent study looked at lipase levels in milk that was refused by infants, supposedly due to the odor of the milk, um, according to the mothers. So this study, uh, published in Breastfeeding Medicine in uh, 2019, was done at the Rogers Hickson Ontario Human Milk Bank in Ontario. So the authors collected milk from 16 mothers with infants who refused their frozen milk. And uh, they took samples from these mothers on postpartum days 30, 60, 90, 120, and 150. And they evaluated the lipase activity, protein content, fat content, levels of free fatty acids, acidity or pH, and bacteriology. And they compared these levels with other mature raw donor milk that they received because they are a milk bank. And what they found is that for all mothers, the protein content of the milk was highest on day 30 and lower at subsequent times, which we already know full well that milk that is um, within that's early term milk, meaning and even for prematures, that that milk in the first month is highest in protein and that gradually um, decreases. Um, the, um, the lipase activity in refused milk was not higher on day 30 and in fact it was lower at all subsequent times as compared to the control milk. And all refused milk samples had lipase activities that were within the normal range typically seen for human milk. There was also no significant difference in the level of free fatty acids as compared to the controls. And there were no major differences in bacterial growth. So it wasn't that the milk was bad in terms of like contamination with bacteria. But they did find that the pH, the acidity, was a little lower in the refused milk as compared to the control milk. 
So in summary, they didn't find that refused milk had higher lipase activity. So I just want to share the way I tend to explain this to families and to others. Um, so basically, the milk fat has triglyceride molecules, which is um, a combination of glycerin bound to fatty acids. And the types of fatty acids are partially determined by the fats in mom's diet. So if she has more fish in her diet, she'll have more long chain fatty acids in her milk, for example. Um, and that's not the only thing that controls the fatty acid types. It, there's also some genetic components as well. So here we have the, this triglyceride molecule that needs to get broken down. And then all breast milk has lipase. And lipase's responsibility is to break down those triglyceride molecules. So it breaks the bond between the glycerin molecule and the fatty acids, which frees the fatty acids. So this is supposed to happen as soon as the milk is expressed, whether it goes into the baby's stomach or goes into the bottle, because its job is to break down the fat for the infant. But when the fatty acids that are freed are exposed to air, they become, they become oxidized and then they can develop an odor. And this is also um, what we call rancidity. Like if someone, something becomes rancid, it tastes off because it's oxidized. <clears throat> and the, the, um, the, this odor that um, develops <clears throat> has for years been thought to be due to high lipase levels. Um, so, but um, the, um, the odors actually depend on the type of free fatty acids, most likely. So for example, free fatty acids from avocado oil might differ from free fatty acids from um, fish oil. The authors hypothesized that part of the issue here might be the storage conditions in the freezer, that there might be more breaking down of the triglycerides, freeing the fatty acids, and lowering the pH. Um, so what I tell parents when they have this concern, first of all, I say it's not due to high lipase levels. It has more to do with rancidity of the fatty acids. And the longer the milk sits in the freezer, um, the more it, uh, the, the fats, the triglycerides get broken down, and the more that uh, the fatty acids can become oxidized, which is why fresh is going to be best. Fresh milk is not going to have this problem nearly as much as stored milk. On the other hand, what I tell parents is that, look, just because things smell funny doesn't mean that they can't be eaten. And we, as adults, eat a lot of icky smelling things like cooked broccoli, fish, hard-boiled eggs, and aged cheese. And they still taste fine anyway. In fact, we really like those things. So first, it's a good idea for moms not to jump to conclusions about their infants not liking their milk just because of the smell. It might be the temperature of the milk or giving a bottle in general or using a cup or however they're giving that milk. And if the milk smells, the milk should not really be considered bad. It's, it's not going to be due to excessive bacteria, most likely. Um, mom could consider changing her diet a little and stop taking fish oil or change the type of fats that she's eating to see if that makes a difference. And she also might want to give fresh milk rather than older milk, since the longer the milk is stored, the more chance the milk has to become rancid. All right, well, those are my reports for today on the podcast. And um, certainly send me an email at ann at lacted, L-A-C-T-E-D.org. If you have any questions, you can also contact us on our Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page. Again, happy Mother's Day to all. And we will um, be in touch in the next month. Take care. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, 
our little green book of breastfeeding management for physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.